and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am the Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, Senior Reporter at Digiday. This is episode three in our four-part series, uh, The Modern Newsroom Leader, in which we are interviewing editors, executive editors, editors-in-chiefs, uh, people who have taken the reins of newsrooms um, over the last year. Um, and Kaylee, for this episode, you spoke with Leah Finnegan, who is the editor-in-chief of the recently relaunched Gawker. Yes, I got to speak with Leah. Um, she, it was a really interesting conversation because I feel like, unlike some of the other editors in chief that we've spoken with so far, um, who are coming into these like, you know, pretty well established um, newspapers and, and media companies, she's coming in to Gawker, which is, as you mentioned, just recently relaunched. Um, she had experience at. Gawker previously. She was the features editor um, a few years back in what we might like to call Gawker's heyday. But, um, you know, back then Gawker had its issues. It had some problems, as Leah points out, with misogyny and and being kind of this like bro culture in the, you know, um, media company itself. But then the coverage of it was also a little dicey at times, obviously, with the uh, the infamous um, lawsuit around the celebrity sex tape. So she's coming into a brand that needs to do some rebranding. And I think that that's an additional challenge um, on her plate that, you know, maybe another editor-in-chief doesn't have to deal with. Yeah. And, and what did she say about, like, how this new iteration of Gawker is different than the old iteration? And also, like, because, you know, she had you mentioned she had been features editor at the old Gawker, now she's the editor-in-chief. Has she staffed up the editorial organization differently? Yeah, so we do talk about her strategy for staffing, um, and it's been primarily women, which is, I think, one way of um, addressing some of those issues that I laid out before. But when it comes to like the actual content of Gawker, you know, we're not going to see those, you know, gossip for gossip's sake kind of pieces. We're not going to see things that are, you know, setting out to ruin people's lives. She says that that's not her goal. Um, and granted, you know, when she was at Gawker in the past, she did contribute some of those pieces, some of that type of um, content that might be a little bit more, um, you know, bold, critical, rude even. And she is very clear in the fact that that's not what she wants to do at this point. She wants Gawker to be funny. She wants Gawker to be, um, you know, satirical kind of criticisms and uh, really like taking a look at culture. So it'll be interesting to see, I think, how Gawker 2.0 rolls out in the next, you know, year or so. Could be fun to, you know, have her back on the podcast a year from now to see how things have gone. For sure. Well, looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Leah, thanks so much for being on the Digiday podcast today. I'm excited to talk with you for this series that we're doing on the Modern Newsroom Leader. No secret, you previously wrote for Gawker. Now you're serving as the editor-in-chief of Gawker. You were the features editor, I believe, from like 2014 to 2015 back then. So you're not coming into this role cold. You know what Gawker's about. Um, what made you want to return and lead Gawker 2.0? Thank you so much for having me. Um, the main thing that made me want to return was that I didn't have a job and it was <laughs> it was the middle of the pandemic and I was like, oh, I, I need a job. And um, I had worked at Bustle previously and I had worked with both Josh Topolsky and Brian Goldberg and 
Uh, I always really loved working with Josh. So when he came to me to do Gawker, knowing that I would be doing it with him was a huge draw. Did you have any hesitancies coming back to it at all? Well, you know, it's, it's such a loaded place. And the time I was there was so dramatic and tumultuous. And it was an earlier iteration of the way digital media worked. And uh, so I didn't want to go back to that gawker, but that definitely was a turning point in the kind of journalism I realized could be done and wanted to do again in the future. That makes sense. So I guess it's kind of nice, like you being the editor in chief, you can direct the new Gawker in the direction you want it to be in. I guess, you know, I, I did read the New York Times profile, um, which kind of had the the big question of, you know, is um, a nice Gawker, I think the title was like, is nice Gawker still Gawker? Um, but you mentioned like, you're not interested in ruining people's lives, right? No, like that was a, no. not a big part of the old Gawker, but it did, I don't know, lead to lawsuits, right? Like that, that sure, did. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I guess like kind of in this new role, I'm curious, like, could you outline maybe like what your mission is for Gawker now? Like if you had a mission statement, um, what would it be for the team that you're creating and the the coverage that you're doing now? I think a, an important thing to know and to, to realize about old Gawker is that the lawsuits and the uh, really incendiary stuff and, you know, the misogyny, that was only about not to minimize it, but it was 20% of what Gawker was. And then the rest of Gawker was funny and smart and provocative. And I did, I edited some of my favorite pieces I ever did at that Gawker. Um, so my, my mission statement going into this Gawker was to take the parts I really loved about the time I worked there that don't really get remembered because they're not a sex tape uh, and make those into the cornerstone of the new Gawker. What were some of your favorite pieces from old Gawker then? I'm curious kind of what you're using as a guidepost maybe into mm-hmm. new Gawker. I think the the main thing I loved about Gawker was that it was so funny. And every day when we were pitching around blog ideas, we were laughing, laughing at the news, like laughing at what each other came up with. And I remember uh, looking through the archives before kind of writing up my mission document for this Gawker. And there's this post by Adrian Chen called Top Five Gifts Under Five Cents. That is just one of the sweetest, funniest, cleverest things I've ever read. And it really, to me, exemplified the best of Gawker because here you have Adrian who is an incredible reporter, um, you know, kind of an incandescent talent who emerged from Gawker, but he also had this incredible range where he could write a silly post that was just strike such a, a an original tone, but also be a great reporter. So in hiring, I, I wanted to find find people with that kind of range who could see the humor and things and also see what kind of things, you know, needed more scrutiny. I had a question about um, your team as well, because you're, I think you're 13 people um, on the Mm -hmm. edit staff. Um, Most of them are women or Mm -hmm. like, you know, yeah, I'd say most of them are, I think there's like one, one 
male on your staff. Mm -hmm. Was Mm -hmm. that like an intentional um, decision at all? Or did it just kind of like happen to come, come out that way? It definitely wasn't intentional. And I just kept reaching out to writers I liked and towards the middle, I was like, oh, these are all women, but I still have all these women I want to talk to on my list. And I assumed that many of them would say no, which of course, uh, quite a few did, but then it still turned out that all the people I liked the best were women, but yeah. I did not set out to make a, a women's site. Women's right. Only site. And yeah. And I, I don't think I would define Gawker as a women's only site. It's just, you know, like any website that has a primarily male staff, right. It's mm-hmm. not just like a male publication, although sometimes mm-hmm. the audience does skew male. Um, right. Regardless. Yeah. So I was just curious if like, if there was any, um, type of personality that you were trying to derive or a new voice of Gawker that was maybe so trying to avoid some of the misogyny that you had mentioned mm-hmm. old Gawker mm-hmm. had had? Oh, I think like um, it probably was a subconscious thing going into this Gawker that I hired mostly all women because the misogyny was such a powerful and noxious force when I was there. And those were always the decisions that where the women on the staff felt like they, you know, really weren't involved with them or like kind of looked the other way because there's this macho energy that was behind them. So I think when I was hiring people for Gawker, um, I wanted to hire people I really respected because I was afraid of people kind of stepping into the firing line of the internet by signing up for new Gawker. So I was like, okay, if I hire this person, like no one wants, no one would come after this person. Like no one would come after this person. And they all happen to be like, you know, these great women. And if you build a site of really smart women, I feel like there's less of a chance that um, people are going to be like, this totally sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I get that. You had mentioned like briefly earlier, you mentioned kind of the pitching process at the start of each day um, when you, you know, previously worked at Gawker. I'm curious if you could kind of take us through what the pitching process looks like um, today. Is it like a, you know, a weekly meeting where you're like, these are the trends that we keep like an eye on, but it also seems like there's a lot of reactive writing. How's that kind of, how's that process go? I like to to keep Gawker as a reactive news blog. I think that's its ultimate DNA. Uh, but we have a weekly pitch meeting where we talk about features and the kind of the bigger stuff we can do, the more reported stuff, the longer stuff, essays and criticism. And also during the day, if it's a slow if it's a slow news day, we just kind of like improv and talk to each other and see if there are things that are annoying us that we want to write about or you know silly questions we have uh our editors commission pieces from freelancers so that's also a separate process the launch party was last week right Mm -hmm. yeah it was last week so it's still early on but like what are some of i guess your favorite pieces that have been written in this kind of new iteration so far Uh, So we did a piece this week that was um, a freelance essay about from a man who had written a lot of fake letters into Dear Prudence, uh, Mm -hmm. Slate's advice column, and many of them had gotten published. And it was just so hilarious and a really perfect essay that was a mix of, you know, 
it was sensitive, but it was really funny. It was kind of cutting. Um, so that was a great, a great piece. I really loved when we just started, uh, Jenny Zhang did this piece about a panda baby where she just really made fun of the panda baby. And it's, I still will reread it and it makes me laugh so much. Um, I had Tarpley hit one of our reporters do a story that about, um, who does the dishes on top chef which was something I had always wanted to know as a huge Top Chef fan. And it completely exceeded my wildest expectations. Uh, and, and again, is one of the funniest things I've read. Claire Carasillo did a story on how all white women in Hollywood have the same nose. Uh, and she kind of writes about the nose on a lot of different celebrities. So it's kind of this like offbeat cultural observation criticism that I find very satisfying to read and I hope other people do too. So I'm also curious too, um, I guess, you know, you've held several editor roles um, throughout your tenure or in the media industry, but you also like, I think this is your first official editor in chief role. Is that right? Yeah, I was executive editor of the outline. New, new to this role, some experience in leading a newsroom. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is this like, I guess, have you always thought of editor in chief as like, your ultimate kind of career goal or was it something that you more so ended up falling into? Cause we've asked this of our um, other guests in this series and some have mentioned like they never thought that they were going to be, you know, in the editor position. I'm curious if that's something that you've aspired to yourself. Well, it's funny. Um, in college, many, many years ago, I was the editor of my student newspaper and it was, I went to a big state school, so it was a pretty big paper, and it was really the most fun I've ever had, and I just loved doing it so much uh, that I was like, yeah, that's definitely what I want to be doing right, like, someday, like, managing. I love to manage, mm-hmm. uh, and then getting into journalism and being like, oh, I, you you can't actually manage until, like, you're 50 or something, so, you know, I was an editor at various places and did some writing and it was very excited, exciting for me to be in this position again, because I do like working with a lot of people and making sure a publication runs on time and is good and making a team coalesce and work well together. And, you know, when I was 22 at the, at the Daily Texan, it wasn't a high stakes situation. So this is a lot more fun and the the dividends are much more satisfying. Yeah, I was, um, editor-in-chief of my college magazine and I would also say it was like it was just really really fun like having a staff of all like people the same age all like you know doing the same things it's it's really cool so I definitely definitely like more power a 22 year old should ever have but it was I was like oh this is so great like yeah no I agree it was like I don't know, you could have a lot of say into like creative direction and like mm-hmm, who you mm-hmm. want to talk to and picking mm-hmm. the cover star for our magazine even. Mm-hmm. It was just, yeah, a lot of power, a lot of fun. Um, and if if, cele- if celebrities come to the campus, they like are obligated to give you an interview. Yeah, for newspaper, absolutely. Magazine, it was a little bit more work to get them to chat with mm-hmm, us, but mm-hmm. My favorite one was uh, Kanye's tour came through and I talked to oh, his yeah. cousin. 
I talked to his cousin for like an hour at a hookah lounge, um, and he would sing <laughs> back like backup for Kanye. Yeah, and uh, that was I think that was the coolest I've ever felt, um, uh-huh. and have yet to repeat that experience. But yeah, now I get it. It was it was a fun time. That was definitely. Yeah. I guess like go, kind of going off of that though, like what do you have any like role models in the industry or like editor in chiefs that you have worked for in the past that you're trying to like, um, maybe not like emanate, but that you admire the work of having like observe them. Wow. Hmm. That's a great question. I've never even really, uh, thought about it in like the large scale. Um, I admire like everyone I've worked for mostly, uh, who, you know, I had this one boss who was, I worked for when I was an intern at the Texas Observer, who was an amazing editor and really taught me a lot about how to report. But also when there wasn't enough to do at the office, he would be like, well, go sweep the floor. And, (laughs) and I was like, I would do anything. Uh, and at the times I worked for, uh, this editor named Sewell Cham. And we definitely had a very like interesting relationship where I was, you know, 24 and super ambitious and uh, probably too big for my britches. And he was not really interested in holding my hand through that time of my life, but really, really taught me how to edit. And I'm so grateful for that experience. What would you say your kind of management style is now? Um, do you have like certain rules that you kind of try to implement in your newsroom or do you feel like it's more of a free flowing environment? It's more free flowing. Um, I don't, I've had bad bosses, so I don't want to be a bad boss, whatever that is these days. But, you know, it's like, if you get your work done, I don't care where you do it or when you do it. I want you to be engaged and I want you to realize that like this job is very rare and you can have a lot of fun and it can be very worth it just to be in the blogging minds all day. I'm curious too, and and granted it's still like pretty new return of Gawker and the team is newly come together, but we've been asking also our guests for the series is like what your approach is to dealing with burnout. Um, Cause a lot mm-hmm. of you know, reporters have been talking about it and mm-hmm. editors are trying to manage, you know, what that looks like. Uh, it mm-hmm. sounds like, you know, if you're giving people the flexibility to work from home or kind of, mm-hmm. you know, do their work at the speed that they can do it at and get it done. It sounds like there's some approaches there to dealing with it, but I'm curious, like kind of what your thoughts are on burnout. Have you been like subject to it either in the past or currently? And like, I don't know, how are you leading your team through that? I think personally, I was kind of born with uh, like life burnout. So work is always something I've gone to for more energy. Yeah. Uh, And especially with being unemployed for a year, I was so happy and grateful to get back to work and actually being involved in a project that I found really exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And as for my staff, I just, you know, that's something I don't want them or anyone to experience. So I just try to be like, you know, if this is something you're feeling, just tell me and we'll work something out. Like your mental health is more important than doing a blog 
bought a panda on gogra.com. But I do still want you to work here because I really like you. So I'm sure just like kind of zoning out and watching a ton of panda content could help with that, maybe. <laughs> maybe not, though, because it gets turned into work and then you, you know, begin to have negative associations with the panda. But I remember like I remember when I was working, especially in my 20s, just being so nervous about bosses like following my every move. And if I wasn't filing exactly on time, I would be I was a very neurotic young worker and it translated into me working all the time. And I definitely don't want to, you know, film at that same kind of environment. So I'm like, okay, it's 530 log off. I don't want to Mm -hmm. see you until tomorrow. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I and uh, uh, Lindsay um, at the cut had kind of mentioned something along the lines of like, to the point of like pandas watching pandas becoming work eventually. It's like she's yeah. like, you know, I want to watch TV, but then it's my brain. How can we write about you know this episode of you know whatever the new show is, Gossip Girl? Maybe mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. always kind of like putting those boundaries up and. I understand why there's been a lot of like burnout, especially in the culture and like entertainment side of the industry as well. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. where do you draw those lines? Which is interesting. Right, right, right. Totally. Obviously there's a lot of creativity and story pitching and like editorial strategy that you're now like, you know, have your hands in and, and working on. Um, but there's also like, I guess the role of editor in chief also has more of like a, involvement with the business side of it too. Has there been Mm -hmm. anything like surprising about those interactions that maybe you weren't expecting coming into the role? Or like, I guess, how, how much do you interact with that side of the business and how much of it is like, you know, looking at the numbers or like the revenue behind, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Not too much, not too much. And I have, um, you know, great kind of PTSD from this because (laughs) I, the outline got shut down, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. And the outline was such a great job. It was mm-hmm. an amazing site to run, but it made zero dollars and made absolutely no sense. And so I really didn't begrudge Bustle when it shut it down because it was doing absolutely nothing for the company. So with Gawker, I'm trying more to like live in the moment with it and you know, the outline was hard because every day I would be like, we're going out of business. We're going out of business. It's like a foregone conclusion and kind of living that with that over your head is makes it difficult to work. So with Gawker, we have the, the advantage of being a new site with a lot of energy and the company has been super, super supportive of what we're doing. And they're really happy that it's relaunched and you know, I'm in basically constant contact with Brian Goldberg talking about stories and, you know, things he likes on Gawker, things he doesn't like on Gawker. But I I feel um, reassured that by his interest, his enduring interest in Gawker and that he, uh, you know, likes to have it as part of the company and that it's something a lot of people are watching. I try not to think too much about uh, the sales, about sales and revenue, which is maybe um, kind of Pollyanna-ish, but ultimately my job is to make good content and manage a staff, manage the staff who makes the content and make them so they, they keep wanting to do their jobs. And uh, this is something that Ben had also pointed out in his New York Times profile, the um 2013 story about like Brian Goldberg's um, 
what is it called? The relentless and well-deserved mockery of Brian Goldberg from, from yeah. Gawker. And the fact that yeah. he bought the site and yeah. kept that up, I think is also yeah. like a interesting but also telling of the like, I don't know, editorial delineation between business too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that said though, I'm curious, like, I know you you mentioned you don't really have to think about the revenue side of it too much, but have you ever been like talking with him or anything, like anyone from the business side who was like, you know, maybe there's some vocabulary usage that like advertisers don't like or like topics that are like maybe too taboo, um, you know, with the whole brand safety issues of certainly media has there been any kind of discussion around that one person did ask if we were ever going to run anything positive which (laughs) I think the answer is yes and if you can't find those like you're looking in the wrong places but one of the the great advantages we have is that Gawker is such a strong brand identity already and Mm -hmm. you know it's Gawker it's not going to be nice it's not going to be a place where uh you know, kind of nervous advertisers are going to go, people know what it is and they have known for a really long time. So it's not like the outline was a very niche site. And I understood that a lot of people didn't know what the outline was, but it was a new site that had like 40,000 followers on Twitter that did like essays about socialism. So I understand that that would be hard to sell, but Gawker is like a much more widely understood thing and it might take a braver advertiser, but I think that people are out there who see Gawker's reach and realize its value. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. Kind of going back to the outline quickly, you mentioned kind of operating, especially towards the end in the state of like, you know, we're going to get shut down, like, you know, kind of thinking about like the worries of digital media from like a operational standpoint. I'm curious like if there are any lessons you took from your time at the outline and leading that site that you have kind of like implemented into your leadership at Gawker or if they just feel like two different brands that maybe some of those lessons don't necessarily apply at Gawker. Like personally or for the larger staff? I guess more so in like the running of the brand itself, right? Like the for the larger staff, I would say. Yeah. Like, were there any kind of like leadership lessons you you're taking from the outline into Gawker, or does it feel like a different experience now? It does feel much different because the outline was so small, and it was mainly a staff of editors uh, uh, commissioning pieces, whereas. Uh, at Gawker, the staff is a lot younger. They're all writing regularly, multiple times a day. Um, we don't have as much freelance content. So it's it's a different kind of atmosphere. But I think the, the main thing I've learned from both jobs, even going back to my college paper days, is to be as hands-off as I need to be until I need to be more hands-on not to micromanage, which can be hard, but. I'm also curious. So like, obviously Gawker is a digital media brand. There's a lot of written content. Do you have any plans to like experiment with other storytelling formats, like podcasts, um, get into video at all? Like, is there any kind of like plans for that? Are you, you know, sticking, sticking true to. True to, true to text. I'm a very strong believer in text and that people will always want to read on a screen, no matter how many mediums come and go. 
how does that work from like a business standpoint? Do you have like, I don't know, business people being like, hey, you know, newsletter could be a good thing or. We have, we have newsletters, you know, I think that falls under the tech umbrella or the, the text umbrella. So I'm, I'm fine with that. And we have like, we have an amazing social editor who is doing our different channels and running the newsletter. Um, you know, I have, I have no, I'm, am into disseminating our content, but what I want to podcast, I don't know. What would it be? I'd rather write, put the resources toward more people writing. That makes sense. I think also it, it fits with the gawker like voice too. I feel like it's harder to be snarky or like critical of something when you're like talking about it on a podcast, especially mm-hmm. like if it's supposed to be like a snappier like news thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that makes sense. That makes sense. When you're thinking about audience, are you targeting the old readers of Gawker or are you hoping to get a new demographic of reader in? Mainly because I'm curious of like the people you've seen return to the site like in the first few weeks, if they're the same people who maybe were expecting a more callous approach to culture and celebrity coverage like you used to write or if this is maybe a newer cohort of readers who are um, now being introduced to, to Gawker. I had like, that's been kind of the most interesting thing as we've relaunched is like seeing the reaction from the hardcore Kinja people who were deep in the comments of uh, original Gawker and how much they hate new Gawker and how much, how mad they are that there isn't a comment section. And I'm like, these are the people I, you know, no disrespect, but I don't really care about their readership because I knew they were going to hate it anyway. There's no way we're going to make them love it Mm -hmm. um, if it's not completely the same. So I'm definitely looking for a new readership. And it's, it was really funny interviewing people and even people I hired. I'd be like, did you read Gawker? And they'd be like, oh yeah. Like when I was in fifth grade, like I read Gawker And I'm like, okay, so Gawker means something totally different to you than it does to me and to people 10 years older than me and to the people who founded Gawker who were, you know, my age when they were doing it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting to see how it can evolve around those lines. What was the decision to not have the comment section? You know, I always thought the comment section was so awful and it was so abusive and it's just a place where assholes can come in and make fun of the writers and no one needs that. There was, I mean, I remember on Kinja, there was a comment group called like Leah Finnegan is the worst person ever. And, you know, I would read it and then I would feel bad about myself and no one was doing anything to protect us for that or from that or moderate that they were just like throwing the writers to the wolves were the commenters and there's this incident at Jezebel where they got spammed with like an angry mob of four channers who posted all these photos of vaginas in the comments and they had to the bloggers had to delete all of them themselves and it was just like such a mess and I don't want anyone to uh you know if if people come for my writers I'm going to fight them so I don't need like the added burden of commenters. People can comment on Twitter. Right. I was going to say Twitter's already, it can already be a hostile enough place that Mm -hmm. like maybe that's where you limit it to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You don't need multiple platforms for someone to tell you that they don't like what you're writing. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. In the, 
you know, just first few weeks, like how has the reception been from like an audience standpoint? Like, are you seeing like, I don't know if you remember what the numbers might have looked like back in, you know, Gawker's heyday, but I'm curious if it's feeling like the same kind of like reception, like same kind of eyeballs or, I mean, it's still new. So I'm guessing that there's a lot of like, you know, revving up that needs to happen, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess, how does it, how does it feel like how does it compare? Compare to Gawker of Yore? Yeah. I mean, I've been really surprised the entire time I've been working on this project how positive the reception has been. I mean, when I started back in March reaching out to people, I was terrified. I was so scared that people were going to hang up on me. They were going to be like, what the, what are you doing? Like, this is a horrible idea. You're going to ruin your own reputation as if it hasn't been ruined five times. Um, Like, this is a horrible idea. And then I kept talking to people and they were like, oh my God, that's, this is so cool. Like, I loved Gawker. Like, I've like the internet needs something like this. And so I started to, you know, feel this confidence that this project could really work. And once we launched, I was like, well, we have such great writers. The stuff we're doing is really funny and it's interesting to read. And if people hate it, I don't really care, but I've seen mostly that it's been super positive and people haven't been having the conniption fit that, I might have expected, especially old Gawker people. And I think for some of the old Gawker men, it does have to do with the fact that they can't make fun of a group of young women (laughs) and be like, Gawker has been ruined by these lovely young women. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm also curious too, because like, I feel like looking at BDG's kind of portfolio of brands, Gawker's, feels very different from the rest of them, like barring maybe like the outline and maybe like Elite Daily too. But I'm just curious, like, do you overlap at all with the other brands? Like, do you like, you know, have editorial meetings that like you work with the other, I guess, BDG brands or is it pretty like independent? Like, do you have, I don't know, input from others? It's pretty independent. I mean, with Josh's area of the company, which is, um, you know, a few different sites like Mike and Input and Inverse, uh, I work with those editors a bit and we meet once a week and, you know, talk about what we're doing. But for the most part, we uh, work, we're kind of siloed, but we're all connected by Josh, so. Cool. And I guess like my last question for you, I'm, I'm curious if you're doing much writing in this role? Like, do you want to kind of be a, a, a bold voice on the site or are you kind of happy just leading the the charge and, and doing editorial direction? I'm curious, like how much of your own voice um, you get to put into the site? Definitely as little as possible. I'm very, very happy editing. And if I have an idea, I have the great luxury of begging one of my staffers to do it which is so much better than having to do it myself because I hate writing. Yeah, well, that that would make sense. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with me about the relaunch of Gawker and your your role there. And 
everything that goes into being an editor-in-chief of a, a very popular and strong brand on the internet that had a reputation but is coming back I think in a, a fun way and I don't know it's, just, it's been great to talk with you thank you so much thanks so much for having me this is super fun all right well that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast thank you to everyone for listening and please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it you can even rate us and leave a comment on apple podcast if you like we'll be back next week with another episode